As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The second-to-last window of World Cup qualifying in North America starts today. And we're going to do something a little different here on the show. Our U.S. national team reporters Sam Stasekel and Paul Tenorio are on site in Columbus, Ohio for the United States game tonight against El Salvador. And yesterday they hosted a live room on The Athletic where they discussed what they're expecting from the game. That's what you'll hear in this episode. There are some questions from subscribers that happen to be around when the live room was taking place. It's kind of a cool new feature we have and we want to sort of show it off for you here on the show. So it's a little bit longer than what we usually do. But uh, I think it'll be exciting and informative ahead of the big game tonight. I'm Alex Abnos, and this is Soccer Every Day for Thursday, January 27th. Welcome to of Allocation Disorder, a very special edition. Paul Tenorio is back after his long, extended absence. Uh, back recording, back on national team duty, both of us are here in Columbus ahead of the World Cup qualifier between the USMNT and El Salvador on Thursday night. We are recording here on Wednesday afternoon or talking here on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, we're going to break down the whole window. Um, so U.S. obviously has the game against El Salvador, followed up by a match at first place Canada on Sunday in Hamilton, Ontario, and then returning to the frigid, actually going north from Canada to St. Paul, Minnesota, where they'll play Honduras in the final qualifier of the window next Wednesday. Paul, first of all, welcome back. Second of all, window, man, back on national team duty. What are your expectations? What are your thoughts? How cold are you? Just give give, give, give me all. <laughs> well, thank you. It's good to be back uh, off of baby duty for a little while here and on to uh, taking care of you, which is uh, slightly yeah. easier, only slightly, um, in the way that it's only slightly warmer here in Columbus than it was at my home in Chicago. Negative four when I left Chicago. It's like a, a balmy Beautiful. 12 degrees Beautiful. here in Columbus. So I'm, I'm, I'm improved by like 16 degrees. Um, I'm excited for this, man. This is a big window. I think I, I'm really excited for the game in Canada. Um, you know we're gonna we're gonna take this live room one game at a time. I'm sure the same way the U.S. national team is gonna take yeah. these qualifiers one game at a time. But this is a huge window. You know we as we wrote yesterday, 
the U.S. can put itself in really, really good position to qualify for the World Cup. Yes, they could even potentially qualify, unlikely to do so in this window, but they can put themselves in a place for the March window where they don't feel obligated to get wins in either the Azteca or in Costa Rica in the final game of the window. So there's a lot of pressure going into this, and and I'm interested to see how the decision to play these games in Columbus and St. Paul – in those cold weather um, environments, you know, impacts the you know the the vibe of the game, the the, the pace of the game, the style of the game, and and whether it helps mm-hmm. or hurts the U.S. I think that's one of my big questions in this window. Well, that's a big storyline, right? That's the big storyline heading into this window. Much to the chagrin, I think it's fair to say of the U.S. Soccer Federation, but. I think it's a fair thing to talk about and it's a fair thing to bring up. You know, there are a few factors that went into this, the decision to play in Columbus and in St. Paul. Um, I wrote about them in, a, in an article the other day that, that ran on The Athletic. Um, and, and I'll explain it a little bit. You know, U.S. soccer was expecting Canada to play this game in Vancouver against the U.S. And if they had indeed selected Vancouver as a venue, the home cities for the U.S. for this window would have been Portland and San Jose, right? It would have been a much different vibe. Man, I would have loved to see a World Cup qualifier in Portland. Oh, it would have been fantastic, right? The atmosphere would have been, I think, really cool. Um, But Canada didn't pick Vancouver. They ended up picking Hamilton. They wanted to limit their own travel. They're playing in El Salvador and at Honduras in their other two games. Um, So they decided to go to Hamilton, play outdoors. Vancouver is a dome stadium, BC plays at Tim Hortons Field, which is an artificial turf surface. So that's going to be an interesting kind of match. But that threw a wrench in U.S. soccer's plans. And they needed to adjust. And they wanted to limit travel themselves. And playing a home match on the West Coast and asking all the European players to fly across the Atlantic and then across North America to get to the West Coast, play a match. Three days later, play another match on the other side of the continent in Ontario. Then three days after that, fly back to the West Coast for another game, then head back to Europe. That would have been a lot to ask, and that wouldn't have been feasible. So I understand why they didn't play out there, right? Then they start looking at cities on the East Coast or the Midwest. Um, And as we all know, as has been written about and talked about extensively, U.S. soccer has been very public with their desire to play matches in the stadiums where it's going to be a very pro-U.S. crowd. That's a separate kind of issue to this one entirely, but that's, that's what they're looking at. Okay, so it's where can we limit our travel? Where can we have a pro-U.S. crowd? And where can we get a good surface for playing? Uh, and they decided basically to eliminate the East Coast because, Paul, as you know very well, um, D.C., New York. You don't want to play El Salvador in D.C. You don't want yeah. to play El Salvador. Or large, yeah, so there are large populations of El Salvador and, and people from El Salvador, people from Honduras and their descendants in D.C. and, and New York. And, and U.S. soccer was like, if we play on the East Coast, we'll, we'll be inviting a lot of them into our stadium. So they looked once more to the Midwest, to Columbus, where they played Costa Rica in October and, and decided to, to sh- put up shop here. Uh, and then St. Paul for the return one. And the rationale is travel, limit that, right? The surface, they're confident the surface will be good in both, both cities. But they view the cold as an advantage. And I get it to an extent. Right. If any team is going to have a worse effect of playing in the cold, right, Honduras and El Salvador will be less used to it than the U.S. will. And so I get it. It could affect them worse than it could affect the U.S. immensely. But my thing is, and I think this is pretty common, 
the U.S. is way more talented than these two teams. You know, I don't think you need to look for the extra percentage point or two that you're going to get from playing in the cold against El Salvador and Honduras. If you play them on a neutral field in good conditions, you should you should win the game basically every single time. And playing in these climates at this time of year has the potential to really neutralize the talent advantage. If it snows, right, all bets are off. Um, and it doesn't look like it's going to snow here in Columbus. I think, you know, the forecast for tomorrow, uh, it's going to be cold, but not not anything that's in, unmanageable. Um, St. Paul could be a different story, though. Um, yeah. So we'll we'll see how it shakes out, but you know, Sam, I feel like I feel like just I just feel like there's the potential to backfire, and you're not gaining that much on the margins here. Yeah, I, I think my my opinion on this is I think it's overthinking a little bit, but I'm okay with this game here in Columbus. Like you're playing the odds that you're gonna get a you're gonna get a cold game. You're playing the odds that it wasn't gonna be too cold, and it looks like it's it'll be pretty chilly tomorrow night, probably in you know. 20 degrees or lower, right? But it's not going to be what St. Paul should look like, which is going to be ridiculous. And I don't have a problem playing the game in Columbus ahead of a game in Hamilton, Ontario. Like, I actually like the idea of getting used to playing in the super cold weather before you go on the road to Canada, sending a message to Canada and John Herdman, who loves to play mind games. And we'll talk about Canada later. Like I think Herdman's one of the most fascinating characters in this entire World Cup qualification cycle. But, you know, they, they really wanted to intimidate Mexico and they did playing them in Edmonton in the last window. And I think, you know, they, they think there's a real advantage to, to kind of embracing being Canadian and being in the cold weather and playing in the snow and I kind of like sending a message to Canada of like, oh, yeah, well, we like cold, too. We're going to play this game in Columbus. It's going back to St. Paul after that that I really disagree with because yeah. there's a whole other level of cold in Minnesota. It's it's you're you're risking playing in weather where it's not like, OK, five or 10 or 15 minutes into the game, you run yourself out of feeling cold. You know, your your adrenaline is kicked in. You're you're warm from running around. I think it's going to be the next that'll level. That'll be the situation for the game here in Columbus tomorrow night. For sure, for um, sure. No. I mean, I've played in cold weather. Sam, you have too. You grew up in Illinois. Like I've played in cold weather. You know, without you know, even training at Northwestern, like it, it, you do get to a point where you're not as cold anymore, and you can kind of sort of just play soccer. But when you get to that next level of cold, where it hurts to breathe, period, it's going to be a different vibe. I would have liked to see the U.S go somewhere warmer coming out of the Canada game, you know, and, and played maybe in Florida or something like that. And and I know we talk about travel time, but they're flying on a private charter. It's not, <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's like, it's not like, and I don't know that Honduras would have been flying on a private charter, you know? So yeah, I don't yeah. know, man. I, it's the, it's the return game that really gets to me, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it'll be a huge. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the forecast right now for next Wednesday in St. Paul, Minnesota. And, you know, this will change over the next week. But the current forecast around kickoff time is 9 degrees air temperature with a 11-mile-an-hour wind, right? That wind chill is going to put you down around zero at kickoff. Uh, there's a there's a 20% chance of snow on that day as well. Uh, it's going to be bitter. Uh, and I don't know. I feel like, again, it's getting a little bit too cute. It's overthinking it a little bit. Um, I think you probably could have gone to plenty of soccer stadiums around the country and done the tickets in such a way that would ensure a pro-U.S. crowd against Honduras. Um, and, and so I don't know. We'll see. Um, I, I think ultimately 
the U.S. probably wins those two games anyway. Um, but I, there is a real potential for this to backfire. And and I think it's worth pointing out. So I also oh, want to say I feel oh. bad for the, the fans that in, in St. Paul they're going to be asked to stand in that weather to watch the game. Like, it, it's, it's, it'll be a totally oh, different – come on, man. It, it's going to suck. It's going to oh, suck. Oh. I mean, the people in Minnesota, they're – I guess I forget that, Minnesota, like, man. I don't get to drink during these games. I'll be in a yeah. press class, but, like, no, they'll, they'll it be could drinking. Be, it them. could be really cool for them. I mean, I don't know. I, I say this as someone who grew up in the sort of upper Midwest – and has spent my whole life going to sporting events in the freezing cold. I, I've ac- I actually went as a fan to the coldest Bears game in the history of Soldier Field. It was a oh. Monday night game against the Packers. And I think the air temp at kickoff was negative three. That was before wind chill. And was it freezing? Yes, it was. Uh, was I wearing 18 different layers of clothes? Yes, I was. Did I have on like a liquid blanket of some sort? Yeah, I did. Um, but it was awesome. It was a great experience. You did not have fun. You never have fun watching the Bears, you liar. No, they won. They beat them in overtime. <laughs> Kyle Orton, man. Legend. Kyle, okay, you didn't tell me Kyle Orton was playing. Okay, you had fun. I'm sorry. <laughs> it, was, it was back before the Bears wrote me forever uh, for sports. Um, anyway, Paul, you, you have watched – El Salvador. You rewatched the game uh, from from the September window, and just to kind of back up a step, this is a recreation of of the September window in reverse. So El Salvador, Canada, Honduras, that sequence just flipped the home and away. Uh, the U.S. drew zero zero at El Salvador in the first match of qualifying. Drew one one against Canada at home in Nashville in the second, and then of course that famous match down in Honduras, where you know down one nothing at halftime. Um, we're thinking, uh-oh, what's going on here? And then four to one winners by the end of the game, and Ricardo Pepe has announced himself as a starting striker. Um, but Paul, you watched that El Salvador game back just the other day. Uh, what did you find from that match? It's obviously going to be a much different team. We're not going to see Conrad De La, De La Fuente or Gio Reyna or Josh Sargent or Tim Ream or Zach Steffen, although he didn't start that match either in the starting eleven. Um, so it's going to be a much different squad. But what did you see from that match, and what do you think about apply um, to tomorrow night's game? Yeah, definitely much different. Like you said, four starters in that game, not even on the roster in this in this window. Um, here's what I'll say. My takeaway was it was better than I remembered it live. Um, I obviously wasn't in the stadium that day. You were. I was watching from a hotel room in Nashville. Um, but, you know, I, I remember being disappointed watching the game as it unfolded, partly because your expectation is really high at the start of World Cup qualifying. There's a lot of hype around it. You're excited for the start of qualifying. And U.S. was talking about a nine-point window, if you recall. And in the first five minutes of that game, the U.S. should have been up 2 nothing. Um, actually, I'd say the first n- nine minutes of the game. Because in the ninth minute, Miles Robinson broke free in the box on wonderful service from Gio Ren on a, on a free kick and had an open header from about six yards out and, and didn't put it on target. Should have been a goal. Easily should have been a goal. Um, but they also had two other chances. They had a chance in the third minute. They had a chance in the fifth minute. Weren't able to convert. And through the first 10 minutes, they were truly, truly dominant against El Salvador. And, you know, it slowly backed off after that. But what I, what I took away from the game was when the U.S. pressed high, they caused El Salvador a ton of problems. When they pressed high and they got vertical quickly and they played quickly in transition, it was, I mean, it was fairly obvious that El Salvador couldn't handle it. Um, they, they made mistakes out of the back several times. The goalkeeper um, would, would get the ball and, and, 
and play a long ball that was easily won in midfield by the U.S. and, and thrown back into transition. What was lacking was the final third. You know, they didn't they they weren't able to turn those half chances into full chances. They weren't able to make those half chances turn into really difficult saves that lead to rebounds and more issues where that last pass was missing. And, you know, when I when I look back on it, I, when I looked at that game again and watched it, I just watched it, you know, two days ago. I felt like the U.S. was was by far the better team. And I think that in this game at home, we should see even more of the strategy that worked well in those sequences in El Salvador. And there were kind of these 10 to 15 minute segments where the U.S. was was very good. Now, there were also segments where El Salvador had more of the ball. Um, you know, after that first 10 minutes or so in El Salvador, they they were able to take a little bit of control from you know, around the 11th minute until the 21st minute. So they had a little 10-minute segment where they created a chance. Um, you know, Serginio Desk got sucked way too narrow at one point. He was next he to had, the dream. He, had a tough he, he, down there, he didn't have a great game there. I mean, he was just so attacking-minded, and Tim Ream was the center back next to him, and it left open a huge space that El Salvador, understandably, was trying to exploit. They actually messed up the midfield, too, because Adams had to cover for, for Desk. Yeah, and that, so that led to – that led to El Salvador attacking the right side because once Adams transitioned over towards the left, El Salvador started to play long switches to their left side and uh, Alex Roldan started to get very involved in the game. But, you know, again, in the moment, I was kind of latching onto these good moments for El Salvador when I was watching it back in September because you don't expect it to happen. Sitting back and watching it now a few months later, you know, this is a game the U.S. should have won. They should have won it, you know, and – um, and I think that those ideas that led to their good moments, the, the high press, the quick transition, the getting vertical, are things that the U.S. has done better over the course of qualification. And I would say there were certain moments in this game, Conrad De La Fuente really didn't add anything in the left wing spot. That's going to be Christian Pulisic this time around. Gio Reyna um, actually had a couple nice moments where he set up opportunities but not as much of a vertical player. There were a couple of times where he'd win the ball in transition and kind of slow things down, cut it inside, look to combine. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's going to be Tim Weah or Brendan Aronson, where they're going to be running and transitioning. So I and think this game Aronson, sets up. Speaking of, right, played as an eight in that match. He, he played centrally. And yeah, it wasn't yeah. as bad as I remembered it, but, but he, was, he just he was, he was absent. Positively. He was absent yeah, until yeah. they moved him to the wing at the end of the game. They, they switched exactly. him out to the right side. And, and that's going to be... You, you saw him found the game. Right. So, you know... Again, watching this game back, and I'll be writing about it, it was better from the U.S. than I expected. Um, and, I, and I also think there were, a, there were several moments, several headers where the U.S. could have done better, several yeah, chances yeah. where they could have scored late in the game. There were four chances in the 67th, 72nd, 76th, and 80th. On all four chances, I thought the U.S. should have done better and potentially scored a goal. So it wasn't just the first 10 minutes of the game. There was this point late in the game where El Salvador was worn down. There were just there were there were opportunities for them to do better, and 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 that was my big takeaway. Yeah, there weren't a ton of chances created in the run of play in that match. Not a ton of clear looks, in my opinion, at least in, in my memory of it. Like, is am I off? Am I remembering that incorrectly? Sorry, say that again. There weren't a ton of clear chances created by the U.S. in that match. No, I mean, again, look, I'll, I'll go through them again that I marked down. I mean, in the third minute, there was a, a, a buildup. It got Geo wide into space. Instead of cutting it back to um, to Weston, 
he took a shot that went into the side netting. He had a chance to cut it back into the middle that I thought would have led to a good chance for Weston McKinney in the box. Mm-hmm. Um, two minutes later, Yedlin broke through on the right side into space. A nice ball from Josh Sargent, who was starting up. There was no late run. And Aronson came in super late, and the ball kind of bounced off of him and j- went just over the crossbar. I thought that was another another moment where if you had a little bit more movement in the box, um, there it could have been a better opportunity, though Aronson – you know, was able to create something out of it. Then the, the Miles Robinson moment in the ninth minute, that was their best chance of the game. And that came from a set piece. And then in those last four chances that I talked about from the 67th to the 80th, you know, some of them were set pieces, mostly were crosses. You're right. It wasn't set pieces. Weston McKinney had a header, um, yeah, a nice yeah, little chip that. from Gio Reyna. He couldn't yeah. get it on target. Kellen Acosta had a header from a Weston McKinney cross from the right side that he should have done better on. PFOC had a header in the 80th minute. Um, you know, so they, they had chances. It wasn't just through set pieces, but they did have chances with headers in the box. I think they yeah, would they, have they chances on set pieces. Yeah. Part. And they, they, yeah, they yeah. were half chances. They couldn't turn those half chances into more than, I mean, even one chance that wasn't a half chance. I'll go back to the, the 67th minute. Jordan Peapock caused the turnover in the final third in a really dangerous position where it was a three on two attack with 25, 30 yards of space between the U.S. players, and the goal. And he took a bad touch and mm-hmm. after the turnover, and it caused him to have to turn right and play Aronson. And had he looked over his shoulder, Gio Reyna was unmarked completely by himself, 10 yards yeah. of space yeah. on the left side. I mean, that's an opportunity there where you think to yourself, when that turnover happened, that should be a goal at this level. Yeah, yeah. It should yeah. be a goal. So these are those moments that, you know, they make the difference in qualifying, right? It's the difference between one point and three points. And, you know, but when I look at those, the number of those moments that happened in this game, I would have expected the U.S. to win watching it back. And so, again, I think that they can be a little bit more aggressive at home. I think they should start the same way they did in El Salvador, press like hell, stay high up the field and and you're going to get rewarded with chances. We saw that in that first game, and I think I think we should see it again in Columbus tomorrow night. Note on El Salvador, Greg Berhalter, he had a press conference just an hour ago or so. Uh, he expects them to come out pressing much like they did in that match in San Salvador. Uh, uh, you know, I think he mentioned, Paul, that they were kind of the best pressing team that the U.S. saw in the first eight qualifiers. They did the best job. Yeah, the, highest, the highest pressing team, the most number of, yeah, of yeah. pressing moments. And, and they did a good job with it. They disrupted the U.S. They made it difficult for them to, to to build up, essentially. And the U.S. didn't do a great job of that throughout that match. Um, I do think, though, that the, the kind of stronger identity that they have now, uh, more games under the belt, the fact that hey, some of the better players are going to be here and playing in their proper positions, uh, I think that creates good conditions for, for the U.S. tomorrow. And I think we should probably fully expect them to win this game in my opinion, without too much trouble. Um, there are some things that are, you know, are a little bit up in the air right now in terms of the lineup, and we can talk about that a bit um, as well. You know, Zach Steffen, starting goalkeeper, he ain't going to be starting tomorrow. He's still in Manchester with a back injury. Um, we'll see if he's able to come in at all this window. I would be surprised. So Matt Turner is going to get the nod. Um, he's certainly plenty capable. He started that match in El Salvador uh, the first time around. So so I don't think there will be too much of a drop-off there. Um you know, quickly though, I will note the one yeah, weakness. Yeah. The one weakness of Matt Turner is his ability to play with his feet. And that we saw Berhalter kind of what Stefan brings when you're getting pressed. Um, that you can play it back to the goalkeeper and play out of that press led to a goal against Costa Rica. 
thought was very effective against Mexico um, as well. Matt Turner had one small mistake. It wasn't even really under pressure. He just took a bad touch, and that led to the, El Salvador's best chance of the game. It led to a corner kick, um, and Alex Roldan took that short corner, beat DeAndre Yedlin one-on-one, and curled a shot just over the crossbar. So when we talk about a high-pressing team in El Salvador, they are going to need Matt Turner to be – you know, to to play out of that yeah. position, and that'll just be something to keep an eye on. If I'm we're not gonna criticize, if we're gonna criticize Turner for that moment, we have to talk about Stefan and what he did against Costa Rica. Too. For sure, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's something to keep an eye on. In that they would have expected Stefan to start, and part of what they expect of Stefan is that they can play out of the sure. press. So when we talk about when Greg's talking about Berhalter about a high pressing El Salvador team, I imagine that there has been some discussion or some change of thought of what it would have looked like under Stefan and what it might look like under Turner. Yeah. Um, we haven't even talked, we haven't even had a chance to talk publicly about the roster, Paul. Um, there's one left back among the 28 players that were called four right backs. Although one of them, DeAndre Yedlin uh, was not even at training this morning because he's had such a hard time getting out of Istanbul and the airport was kind of shut down over there because of the storm that they had. Um, so only three. Uh, no John Brooks, no Tim Ream. Um, he did call, Berhalter did call three strikers with, with Pepe and Jesus Ferreira and Giassi's artist, which is one more than we've seen from him in previous windows. Um, and I think that is, is noteworthy. John Luca Busio not on the squad because he came down with a COVID test, uh, COVID positive. So Luca De La Torre gets the call in his stead, his first call since October. Um, any real standout thoughts to you on, on the selection in terms of guys who aren't here that maybe you were expecting to be? You know, I would have. I, I thought John Brooks would have broken back into the squad here. I think the the question and the problem with John Brooks is probably if he's not starting, you know, is he a type of player that's going to add to the group as a as a bench player, as somebody who's not the starter? Does he have the personality to handle that? I'm I'm guessing that probably factored into the decision there. That would be that would have been the one guy where I would have said Brooks over McKenzie. Um, but, you know, we've seen Walker Zimmerman and Miles Robinson kind of win starting jobs. Chris Richards, I think, has had some strong performances at center back. It's probably the best passing center back in the pool, not named Tim Ream. A lot younger, a lot more athletic, a lot more mobile than Tim Ream, uh, but a very good passer of the ball. So that, that stood out to me. Like you said, only one left back, but I think Serginho Dest is plenty capable of playing on the left. We've seen that, um, and that, that – you know, I think that probably gives some comfort to Greg Berhalter. Kellen Acosta has played there as well. Kellen Acosta has played there. He can play there in a pinch. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was the one big thing to me. I, I, I also – Scally in, stood out to me. I thought he would be here. I'm surprised that, he, that he's not. But Well, the one other thing for me, too, was the striker position. I thought that they would have looked at this and said, okay, we have to anticipate that El Salvador and Honduras could – probably maybe not as El Salvador as much – but Honduras, I think, definitely play in a low block. And I would have thought that they wanted either PFOC or DK as options to come off the bench in a game against a low block where you can have a, a target striker um, if things become a little bit more vertical, have somebody in the box to win headers. I, I thought that that would have been I mean, do you think Zardes and, and Pepe aren't capable of that? I, I don't think it's either of their strengths. 
Okay. Fair enough. I think he might, I think he might be thinking of that. Maybe not as their strength, but he might see them as players that, that can do that, particularly more as artists, I think, than, than Pepe. Paul, you want to open this thing up, man? Get some listeners on stage? I know we got Yeah, Felipe let's open it up. We have some, the, some listeners and then in the audience. And we'll talk, talk to Felipe about, about Mexico. About Mexico. Yeah. So if you want to jump in and ask a question, please go ahead. We can bring some people on stage. Um, so yeah, any other thoughts? You know, I look ahead to that Canada game as, as we wait for any potential quote unquote callers, if you want to, if you want to put it that way. Um, I look ahead to that Canada game. I was so excited for that match. And then Alfonso Davies, of course, the news comes down that he will be out with a heart condition caused by COVID-19. Um, that ter- certainly takes a little bit of the, uh, of the glow off of that one. Um, but still, I think that's going to be a fascinating match for a lot of different reasons. Um, but one of the main ones being the last time the U.S. played in Canada, it was 2-0 loss in the Nations League in October 2019. And I think that match, we can talk about this more later, but that match uh, I think was a real turning point, not just for the U.S., but for Canada too, in, in a couple of different ways. Um, in the meantime, we've got Adam L. Uh, Adam, are you on stage? Can you hear us? What's going yep, on? I- Gotcha. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for adding me. Um, yeah. So my, my question, uh, one of the more kind of debated, uh, personnel choices leading up to this window was the inclusion of Luca De La Torre and kind of the role that he could play for the national team. Um, and obviously a lot of people want to see what he can do, um, in that midfield, one of those dual eight roles. Uh, what do you guys think is, the actual expectation we should have around how much of a chance Greg will give him in the game. Interesting. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the first choice midfield does not include Luca De Uh That's going to be Yunus Musa, Weston McKinney, and Tyler Adams. Um, but we've also seen that number eight position rotate pretty heavily uh, throughout this throughout this qualifying process. That being said, from you know what I understand, I don't think Luca De La Torre would have been called to this camp had Gianluca Busio not come up with a positive COVID test, and so that sort of sort of tells you where he ranks in the pecking order, right? Uh, he might be below Sebastian Legette still, and these things are fluid and they can change, um, but that's sort of where it seems to be. I like De La Torre as a player. I think he offers a lot of the things that Berhalter is asking for, um, but at the same time, Berhalter doesn't seem to love him, right? Uh, this is only his second call-up of the cycle. Um, so, you know, he hasn't had many chances. Will he start this window? It's hard to say. I don't think he will, though. Paul, do you, I mean, do you have anything you disagree yeah, I mean, with if, there? If I were to put money down, I would say no. Um, he does not start in this window. We've only seen him briefly with the national team, and it was against Jamaica, on, you know, in Austin. Excuse me. And that was a game the U.S. dominated. Um they had the ball a lot. Luca Dilatory came in late in the game. Confidence was high. Um, everyone was playing well. I thought he was really good. It was like a 12-minute appearance, I think. He had some a couple nice moments. Sam, you and I both came out of that game thinking he should be the guy to start if they rotate. Um, and they went down to Honduras. They rotated. Or not Honduras. They went down to Panama. They rotated. And they lost that game. And Sebastian Legette was very poor. And Luca Dilatory did not play. And... And I, you know, I've kind of said I thought Sebastian Legette played his way off of this roster in Panama. Clearly, that hasn't happened yet. Um, but I, I still am kind of in a TBD mode 
about Luca De La Torre. I'd like to see him. I would like to see him play in a game where he's challenged a little bit more, where, you know, it's a tougher game versus he came into a really positive environment in that Jamaica game. But that can only happen if you stick him on the field. You can only learn about him, find out about him if he gets that opportunity. And that hasn't happened yet. I've spoken to people who have watched him um, more extensively than I have in Holland. Sam, you went through a bunch of his clips um, for a story we did on that number eight position. I, I went and watched those clips that you recommended. Some really good stuff that he's done in Holland, especially in kind of his ability to carry the ball forward, play vertically. Um, and, and the people I've spoken to who have scouted him say that he, he is pretty consistently good, um, especially at those things. And I think that's why he's here. Uh, but you're right. It is, it is a case right now where he's a little bit behind in the pecking order. Guess what? So was Walker Zimmerman. You know, Walker Zimmerman was behind in the pecking order, got kind of forced into the lineup, had a really good game, and is now, I think, a, a, a go-to starter for this team. I think Luca De La Torre has the same chance to do that in this window if he gets on the field, and we'll see. You know, Tyler Adams is on, you know, a yellow card. Um, they, they could determine after the next game that they need to rotate a little bit. Some legs could be tired. Sam, you, you talked to some people who said recovery after cold-weather games can take a little longer. You know, maybe this is the, the moment where he seizes the job, but um, it's a very competitive spot, that number eight position. Yeah, I don't even, I don't think he's going to seize a job in terms of starting role, no matter what he does. No, 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 right? no, no, not a starting job. Just a, just a, hey, I'm, I'm more, one of the more, first guys more, off the bench here, you know, gotcha. ahead of Sebastian Legette, you know, ahead of Busio, put himself into that, that category. Musa and Weston, and yeah, yeah. when Gio Reyna comes back, Gio, I think, are the top three for those positions. Gio, I don't know where he's going to well, go with his team, to be honest. His whole, yeah, we shouldn't go into Gio thing right now because he's not here. But, yeah. man, watching him in that El Salvador game, knowing how this team plays now, I don't know where. You, I, I don't know where. So, anyways, another day. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, William H., let's bring you on stage. What you got for us, man? William, can you hear us? Uh, yeah, how's it going? All right, there um, we go. I was just, uh, Paul just mentioned it, but um, what do you think about like Adams potentially not starting versus El Salvador because of that yellow card accumulation? Like, does that potentially play any meaning for the Canada game, or that was just my thought there? I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in on this one, Sam. You and I were talking about this. We went and grabbed coffee earlier, and and this came up. I think he has to start this game. And my first instinct was initially like, okay, Canada's the toughest game. You want Tyler in there um, because of how much he brings to this team. You don't want to risk losing him in that Canada game. Matt Doyle brought up this point in his column, and I, I, I read it, and I was like, I agree a 1,000% with what Matt wrote. You have to win your home games. 
you have to win your home games in qualifying. It's the most important thing is to get six points out of those two home games. So in my opinion, you have to start Tyler Adams in this first game because you need three points to kick off this window. You need to get ideally six points in your two home games. And what happens in Canada is a bonus. You want, yes, a, a draw would be okay. Three points would be awesome. But the priority in this window is to get six points out of your two home games and put yourself in a really nice position going into March. That's how I stand now. So I, I flipped my opinion in reading Matt Doyle. Brought up a great point. I agree 100%. I think Tyler Adams needs to start, and you need to get a win against El Salvador. No, and I think you're right. Greg Berhalter was asked about this on, on Friday when the roster was announced or after the roster was announced. Um, and basically, he was like, I think we'd be more inclined to play him and then to rest him, um, you know, potentially for Canada. Um, but basically, like, he's like echoed what Paul just said. They're, they're very much in one game in a dime mode here. Uh, they want to win tomorrow against El Salvador. They definitely want to win against Honduras at home. Of course, they want to beat Canada in Canada too. But I think they're, you know, if they had to choose, their pri- highest priority is the next game. And, and you know you have to win the home games. Um, so I think we'll see Adams tomorrow without much doubt. Um, although I think it's an interesting question. So um, Felipe, I think you're still in here. Why don't you come on stage and we can talk a little bit about your impressions of the U.S. and get some thoughts, you know, on the enemy perspective, so to speak. Um, your thoughts on Mexico as well. Uh, here we go. Felipe, you should be on stage. What is up? There he is, Felipe Cardenas, Felipe, the legend. Colleague. Um, thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Of course. Um, any, any USMNT thoughts before we, before we spend a minute or two on Mexico and, and kind of talk about what's going on with their camp? Uh, I was, I've been listening, to, not a, not a lot of huge, like large sort of thoughts here, but I did want to touch on, on Matt Turner a little bit because um, I mean, I, I totally agree with, with what Paul said. I remember when, when the link to Arsenal happened uh, last week, the first thing that I thought about Matt Turner was how he needs to improve with the ball at his feet, like right away. And like playing in the premier league, like that is going to be so important and playing in these qualifiers is going to be extremely important. I think Sam, you said we shouldn't like jump on him for a couple of mistakes that he's made, but I think we know that's always been an area of improvement for him. And I, I don't even think it's, it's going to be key. You can, you can jump on him, but if you're going to jump on him, you got to jump on Stefan. Yeah. But Stefan is clearly much better in that, in that, in that role. He's much better. He's much yeah, better. I, I would agree, but he also made a huge error that cost the U S a goal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Goalies so, do like that. Said, Goalies do that. Goalies they, are nuts. They do. So. Are but nuts. Turner hasn't done that for the U.S. in qualifying. So just not just, yet. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. And the last thing, you know, uh, Luca De La Torre is just really interesting to me. I think he's an interesting midfielder, like high motor sort of technical midfielder. Uh, the type of guy that like, I, I don't know, like what his sort of opportunities are going to be, but he's the sort of player that could be a surprise inclusion if this team you know, qualifiers for Qatar and he's on the plane to Qatar. He's one of those players that uh, can fill a role, fill a need in a pinch in, in, a, in a major tournament. When, when guys go down, he seems like a very smart player. He's hungry. I like him. I've liked him since he kind of popped on the radar. So I'm kind of like secretly pulling for this guy to, to get some minutes. All right. I, I think I'm with you there on De La Torre. Um, but I did want to ask you a little bit about Mexico as well. They are one point behind the U.S. in third 
in the octagonal. Currently, they have games coming up at Jamaica tomorrow and then at home against Costa Rica and Panama to close out the window. I believe that all three of those matches are going to be played at empty stadiums. The one in Jamaica because of COVID-19 restrictions and then the ones in Mexico because of the chant and the punishment that FIFA and CONCACAF has levied on Mexico due to their repeated violations um, with the homophobic chant that is unfortunately chanted at their matches far too often. So what's kind of the mood you, I think, I believe you had a Q&A with the Tata Q&A. Is it out yet? It's out. Uh, it's out. Okay. It's out so there, it yeah. is out um, on the athletics. So I'm looking forward to reading that when I get a moment here, but what, what's kind of the overall, like the big picture for Mexico right now? Uh, well, quickly, like the, the games in Mexico for against Costa Rica and Panama, they, they're considered closed door matches, but there are going to be about 2,000 fans in attendance in each match. And the reason is because Mexico actually won their appeal against the Court of Arbitration in the International yeah. Court of Arbitration. They won an appeal against FIFA. Uh, and But instead of saying, okay, we've won that appeal um, and we're just going to fill the Azteca, they're actually going to implement a pilot program and invite like a select group of fans that go through the, this new process of the QR codes, the fan IDs, uh, identification and they're going to bring in these fans and like let them watch the game and actually try to implement these different measures and and one of the new measures if anyone is caught uh doing the chant the homophobic chant of these games are going to be banned for for up to five years for mexico national team matches so it's they, they there will be people in in the azteca but that does lead to like the general vibe in mexico like hector herrera uh said yesterday that he doesn't even think the azteca is that imposing anymore because uh it's become too tranquil it's because the, the fans sort of go to hang out and it's much different from what mexico experiences when they travel throughout south america to play as, as visitors so that's a small nugget but it does talk about the vibe around mexican football is i think it's one of just heightened anxiety there's a lot of anxiety around the team and their ability to win games that they should win um there's the reports of tata martino after the canada game confronting the players and saying if you guys don't want me i'll walk away but you have to tell me right now and i think that's a really interesting uh way for a coach to put a subtle onus on the players as well and so the players back i don't to think him, there's anything subtle about yeah, that <laughs> it's true true um but that that like i haven't been able to confirm that report but um it, it i remember being on that call after canada that canada loss and i hadn't seen tata as as angry and frustrated as i did that night um and the Q&A, yeah, listen, it, it, we get into that. We get into the psyche of the players, the mentality of this Mexico team, the pressure that they're under, the consistent and constant pressure that Mexican national team players are under. Uh, not only that, but like, is, is, are their expectations like set in reality? You know, is Mexico the team that we're seeing or do they have the potential to be much better uh, than, they're, than they are currently performing at. And that's what Tata gets into. He talks about the role of journal journalism, that we, the, the way we apply pressure on national team coaches and players, his selection process. And he has a good nugget on the resurgence of the U.S. men's national team and U.S. soccer 
in general. So it's a good q and I always see it as like I'm reporting from behind enemy lines and I'm starting to notice that in the comments of my stories, more U.S. fans are getting in. So hopefully they're seeing <laughs> they're seeing the other side of the coin here and like what build Mexico up, Build up to Azteca in March, man. Everyone yeah. knows that's coming. Everyone knows that's coming. Um, one guy I wanted to ask you about in particular is Julian Araujo. LA Galaxy player was in the U.S. in the youth national team setup. U.S. national team uh, called him up for the Gold Cup, and basically he was like, "Hey, I haven't made up my mind yet." Eventually, he did make up his mind. Uh, he chose Mexico, and now he's in a World Cup qualifying squad. Do you think he's got a chance to see in the see in the field here? I do, I do. Like, uh, and he was very good against Chile in their last friendly at the end of the year, um, and he was one of the top performers in a very young and sort of inexperienced national team that Tata took to Austin to face Chile. But he was legitimately good. You know, like he didn't look overwhelmed. I thought he was very good on the ball. He got forward uh, in a very intelligent manner. Uh, and he showed like his athleticism and the speed that you need to, to display when you're playing as an outside player you know, in the international game. So, you know, Tata likes him a lot. Um, I think against Jamaica, I would I don't think he'll start, you know, I think just because of the sort of game that that might turn into their way. Um, it, it could be a very physical match. I think Jorge Sanchez, the Club America right back, who is sort of just a, a, a stiffer competition for anyone that's going to go 1v1. He's a good defender. I think he'll start. But in a game at, you know, at the Azteca against Costa Rica or Panama, where you would expect Mexico to have a lot more of the ball, to be a lot more comfortable, to have their tactics sort of in full swing, um, and, and, and games, I, I know against Costa Rica, those games do get really physical, but perhaps against Panama, you see him starting on the right side. Again, it's going to depend on what happens in the earlier games. You know, this game against Jamaica is suddenly a massive, massive game for Mexico. And a bit of a resurgent in Jamaica at that. Paul, you've been quiet. You want to jump in here, man? You know, I was just waiting to see what Felipe was going to say about Mexico against Costa Rica and what kind of Mexico would have there. I was just listening very, very carefully to that. Um, you played, you played it right, Felipe. Um, no, I, I, what, what's interesting to me about where Mexico is right now compared to the U.S. is I feel like they're they're obviously in very similar positions, but usually, typically, the U.S. fandom and media and everything us included are the ones that are like freaking out fans especially like this is the worst this is like absolute death even though they're in second place and this entire qualification cycle mexico has seemed like an absolute mess like i don't know what it will take for them to bounce back confidence wise and and the weird thing is is that typically i feel like mexican players do a, a pretty good job of navigating that because they deal with it all the time in their domestic league and they understand the the spotlight the media spotlight that exists and the way it works in mexico but i i feel like it's really caught up to them this time around uh, we've seen mm-hmm. players engaging more pushing back more trying to reset the narrative do you feel like it's it's infiltrated the coaching staff and you're talking to Tata? Do you feel like it's infiltrated the players more than usual? Like how how can they like are they are they fighting back at the media as much as as it seems from you know from my more removed position? No, you're absolutely right. You're right. And when I was in Mexico City talking to Tata, I put it in the Q and A because like despite all the like the toxic sort of environment that's that surrounds this team. 
when I was there, it was totally different. Like it was very controlled. He was very laid back. Everyone around the Federation and around him um, just seemed very intent on stepping up and just moving on to the next game. And there's confidence there, but you can tell that, that, yeah, like the players are, are, when they're given the opportunity, they are, like you said, they're, they're trying to change the narrative. The, the, the one, the one thing that, that I've seen Guillermo Ochoa, Chucky Lozano say is that it's not easy. Like stop saying that Mexico should be cruising through through the qualifying process when clearly the teams around us are getting better. And that is, that's not happening at, at that happened after the loss to Canada, but before that loss to Canada, the media in Mexico is like, no, we're still the Kings of CONCACAF. What is this? What, we can't beat the U S we can't beat these teams. Like what's, what's the problem? So the pressure I feel is heightened. I can see it on their faces. And I've, I've talked to sources around Tata Martino who told me that the pressure is evident in the locker room. Uh, and, and I think that comes through in the Q and a with Martino. He, he addresses it, uh, you know, very eloquently the way he always does. But I've been told by sources close to Martino that the concern is that this, this let's say Mexico gets the World Cup as, as they're expected to do. What are they going to go to Qatar with? Like, what's the vibe? Is, is it going to, are they, are they going to go to Qatar with a combative press corps surrounding that team? Is every interview going to be questioning whether they're good enough, whether they're going to get by get to the semifinals, the quinto partido. Uh, it is it is very interesting and intriguing that they have this very seasoned coaching staff that finds themselves in a situation that they even feel like they haven't been in before. And, and Tata Martino coached at Barcelona. He coached the Argentina national team. So he, clearly it's a, it's, it's a unique situation for them. And you know, he goes back to the to the soccer. He's like, we're we're, we're losing games because we haven't been good enough, but we haven't been dominated. And I don't know. I, I think it's a mentality thing. That's why I focus a lot of my questions on that. Like, how do you fix the mentality of a team that looks damaged right now? Uh, that's clearly talented, but they're just not delivering consistently. Um, and they're taking punches. I think he uses that word. Like, we take big punches in games and we can't react. Gotcha. Um, one team in CONCACAF that is in a positive frame of mind is Canada. And Josh Cloak is hanging out in, in the audience right now. He's going to try and come on stage. He's been having some technical difficulties, but we're going to get him up here in a minute. Um, I did want to spend a little bit of time on that game, though. Felipe, please stick around if you can, man. If you got if you got to bounce. I can stick around. I'll say one last thing. Remember, yeah, yeah. Raul Jimenez is out through injury against Jamaica. The Wolverhampton number nine, he's out. Chucky Lozano out against Jamaica. Yellow card accumulation. Uh, Cesar Montes, a starting center back from Monterey, who was expected to start against the United States, expected to start against Canada in the last window, was injured there as well, also out. So it's like the, the dominoes keep falling, and Tata is going to have to come up with a good plan in this window. By the Especially way, against Jamaica. center backs, no Carlos Salcedo on the squad. So say they're not um, you in, know, no. Not you know, in and he, he is probably on the verge of a move to Toronto FC from Tigres for Jefferson Satelvo, which is interesting in its own right. Um, but to me, he's, you know, when he's in form, he's one of their top center backs. And I was surprised. I know he's had his issues, but I was surprised that he wasn't on this squad. Yeah, that was a surprise. And if you talked and listened to the guys, the journalists that cover Mexican soccer and the national team closely, like they'll all tell you that he is a World Cup caliber center back and he's one of the best center backs in Mexico and he's apologized for the, the, you know the public spat that he had with 
Tata Martino and his, his chief assistant, Jorge Tyler. It was caught on camera during the Gold Cup. Uh, and he's been in resurgent form with Tigres, but he did not make the cut. You know, and perhaps we'll find out tonight when we talk to Tata. He'll probably answer that question. Indeed. Um, Paul, Felipe, uh, we talked a little bit about the starting 11 for the U.S. in this match against El Salvador. Uh, Paul, we're going to write a piece about it later today. Um, but I thought it could be useful to kind of go one through 11. I feel like this one could be relatively straightforward for Burhalter. I think Adams, McKenney, and Musa are going to start in the midfield. So that's one big question. Pulisic will definitely start on a wing. Turner, we know, is going to start in goal. Maybe some questions at center back. Uh, but right back and left back will be Dest and Robinson. Um, Pepe, I would imagine, will start up top. Maybe the other winger opposite Pulisic, Wea, Aronson, who's that going to be? Um, but anything stick out to you from, from what I just mentioned there um, as a potential trouble spot or question mark for the 11th? No, I think you nailed it there. I mean, the the big question, I think the question that we all are asking is, is it going to be Wea or Aronson starting? You know, I kind of lean towards Aronson as the starter at that position. I think he's too valuable to this team right now um, to put on the bench. But Tim Wea has been very, very good, and Aronson hasn't been playing. Wea recently got back on the field, started his last game at Lille before coming to camp. So maybe that gives him a little bit of an advantage in that he's been playing while Aronson's been on winter break with Red Bull Salzburg. Um, but that's one big question for me. At center back, I think there are really only three players truly in play to start there. Richards, Zimmerman, Robinson. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure what Burhalter will do. I, I, you'd think maybe Robinson Zimmerman have been the favorites, but both of those guys haven't been playing because of MLS outside of the December friendly. So I think you nailed the question mark. Um, but, you know, those those are, you know, that's kind of the starting lineup, the obvious starting lineup for me. Um, it, you know, the, there are some no doubters, right? We know the midfield trio. We know Christian Pulisic. We know, you know, Greg Berhalter said as much today that Anthony Robinson is the first choice left back. You assume it's going to be Serginio Dest at right back. So pretty pretty straightforward, I think. I think it'll be Zimmerman alongside Richards uh, for, for tomorrow night. But we'll see. We found Josh Cook. He's here. He's north of the border. He's in Hamilton, as a matter of fact, uh, just down the street from the donut box, Tim Hortons Field, where we'll be on Sunday to watch the U.S. and Canada in a qualifier. Josh, how's it going, man? Good. Sorry, I was just setting up the bunk beds for, for you and Paul. When you guys yes. get here, so oh, I got top is bunk. There, is there enough room to do karate? <laughs> yeah, I. It, it's up to you guys. <laughs> All right, sweet. Um, what is the mood up there, Josh? With Canada, you know they have a, a bit of a difficult window, two road games, and then hosting the U.S. But obviously, coming off, I, I think it's fair to say an all-time high, at least since the last time they qualified for the World Cup, nearly 40 years ago, um, w- in the last window in Edmonton at the Ice Teca, beating Mexico, and then, of course, beating Costa Rica up there and being in first place in the Ocho. So, you know, what is the mood? No Davies this time around. That's going to make a big difference. So how do things feel with Canada, the national team right now? Yeah, I would say for the first time since that that very first window and probably that first game, you know, where they draw Honduras at home and it's kind of like, oh, this is probably going to be a, you know, a difficult run. And then they go, you know, they're, they're the only undefeated team since then. But I would say now expectations are probably more tempered um, than they have been over the past few months. I mean, obviously missing Alfonso Davies hurts, but to me, you know, the, the biggest question is how are they going to deal without 
or possibly being without Stefano Stacchio, who, you know, you can make the case has been their their best player through qualifying, um, you know, at least their best player through 2021. Um, John Herdman says today that, you know, he hasn't been medically cleared yet to play, so it's very unlikely he plays tomorrow and he hasn't even arrived with the national team yet. He's still in in Portugal, you know, with COVID-19, it's possible he plays, you know, perhaps Sunday or, you know, the final game <clears throat> against El Salvador. So I, I think, yeah, expectations are kind of tempered because they know as well that they're going to Honduras and El Salvador, two places that the majority of this national team have never played before. And I think it goes without saying that, you know, playing there is a little bit different than playing you know, in 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 the United States or, or playing at home in Canada. So I, I think there's a little bit of adversity and, and I think that was kind of evident, you know, in the media availabilities this week, maybe the the bravado, which this team has not been short on over the past few months, was tempered. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, you could argue maybe they're just tempering expectations for the public, but I do think there's a bit of concern throughout the camp about, how they're going to adapt, possibly missing, you know, two of their best players. That's kind of disappointing to me to hear. I'm gonna be yeah, I was just going to say, is, is it that you, these are vibes that you're picking up on? Or because like, I can't imagine that the most interesting man in CONCACAF, John Herdman, is, is <laughs> indicating any sort of lack of confidence or concern in his press conferences, right? Like this is just like you're reporting and you're vibing, right? Herdman's coming out and, and, you know, sticking his chest out and blustering as as normal, right? Because I would be very disappointed if that's not the Herdman that we get. I, I don't think you're ever going to see John Herdman not doing his best kind of William Wallace impersonation in every single media availability. <laughs> okay. Right? And I, 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 you know, I, so you don't have to worry about that one. Um, Blood and guts Herdman, baby. Yeah, I just think that. <laughs> this guy's a maniac. And, and, and look, people 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 like that you know he's become a bit of a, a figure in in canada because he just produces these great sound bites you know every single time he goes on radio or or goes on tv and and i i guess what i'm just picking up on is is the fact that you know the there are still hurdles for this men's national team to get over right even though they 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 beat mexico at, at home which was you know, an, a seminal win in the history of the program. But, you know, I, I think they're still just going to continue to face questions until they, they get there, until they qualify, if they qualify for the World Cup. And, you know, I, I think from the beginning, we all looked at this late stretch of games, right? Four of their final six games are on the road, again, um, in some kind of difficult locales. Um, and again, this is a team that is still young and it, and as talented as they are, they are still very much finding their way. And, you know, there's there's players on the Mexican team, there's players on the American team that have have won in these places. But there isn't a lot of players on the Canadian team that have won in these places. So I think until they do that, it's it's fair to kind of ask questions about um but I think you guys know me as well. I, I'm I've been tempering expectations throughout this entire run. <laughs> I, I, I and you know I think that's just because we've seen so many disappointing losses. I mean, you know, with Josh, this team in the past. Josh, you just said that players on the American team have gone down and had results, positive results in some of these places. That's I mean that's just objectively false. Like that's not true. No one on this team has gone down to Central America. 
outside of this qualifying cycle uh, in the win at Honduras. But before the cycle, no one had gone down there and had success. Canada needs to stop waiting for the other shoe to drop. This is a good team that should qualify. Yeah, Davies is out. Eustachio probably going to be missing at least one game, maybe more. And that's a real blow. But, like, this is a top three team in CONCACAF, and you need to stop apologizing about it. You know, you're not going to do very well in Canada if you start asking us to stop apologizing. <laughs> yeah, we're revoking your Canadian citizenship, Sam. You can't take that away. You have no power. <laughs> I, I just want to say that uh, Ustakio, what a player he is, man. He was almost – he was close to flawless against Mexico in, that, in those frigid – what was it? The, the ice you know, – The ice teca. The ice teca. Ice teca. That dude was so slick, so clean the entire game. And he was one of the reasons why Mexico just couldn't control the midfield. The second half, Mexico took over because they were down a goal. But up until then, that, you know, Estaque would just move to Porto. I mean, what, what a player. It's a big loss. I, I hear Josh, like, he's, he's answering these questions with his heart also and his passport. But, you know, I, I agree. I agree. Like Canada, very good team. You know, Tata Martino in that Q&A mentioned Canada as a team that's on the rise, that has elite players. But you could argue that, yeah, they haven't put together like three, four, five games where they've just been great. Uh, It's difficult to do that in qualifying. But I agree. I think there's questions. They should be nervous. Yeah. And this isn't to say they can't. Right. Like, I I think they have, you know, one of the two best teams on paper. But... Again, perhaps it's just part of the psyche that, you know, this, this, I guess the national psyche that this team is kind of battling against that until they do it, you know, it, it, it's fair to ask questions, right? Like you, you're, you're right, Sam, like we're, we're, why am I waiting for the other shoe to drop? Because it, you know, it, it hasn't dropped. It's, it's never, it's, it's, it hasn't happened in the lifetime of, of most people watching this team. Um, and it's, I, I, I think that as well, you want, if you're John Herdman, you also want, he mentioned that multiple times today, and that's kind of what I'm picking up on as well, is they want this team to have a sense of humility because, you know, as great as it was, as many viral moments as there there was after the win against Mexico and, and as, as great as Davies kind of goal against Panama was, the viral moment that that was, Right. Those singular moments are not going to get you to a World Cup. They're going to get a country on board, which this team needs, but they're not going to necessarily get you to a World Cup. He was asked again, I guess this kind of speaks to the the evolution or the, the changes in this team. There was reporters from England, from English newspapers in on, on Herdman's media call today. Um, and so he was able to. Yeah. And he was able to to kind of launch his his bravado and his lines on a whole new audience. Um, but, you know, he was, he Start just quoting kept, Shakespeare. You know? he, well, he just, he, he, he was talking about how, you know, he, he thinks it's important for this team to, to keep two feet on the ground. And, and again, I know that's a cliche, but you know, what we know about John Herdman and what players have told me, you know, about John Herdman is he's the exact same guy in the media as he is with them. Right. He is that kind of bravado. He's the kind of guy that that, you know, will will quote lines and will quote kind of passages from books about war. And, you know, what he says to us, I think, is a a lot of times what he might say to his players. And so if he's telling us that this team needs to keep two foot, two feet in the ground, I I'm inclined to believe that's what he's telling his players as well. 
It, this is going to be a good window for Canada too, though, because part of qualification is going through the challenges of losing good players. Um, and U.S. has had it happen. They haven't had Giorena play since the first game of qualification. Christian Pulisic has missed games. Zach Steffen has missed games. Weston McKenney has missed games. Giorena has missed G- the entire thing. Yeah, I, you know, mentioned Giorena. I mean, they, they've been missing good players, some of their best players. And you have to learn to fight through that. And this is a good Canadian team, and they're going to have to learn to now fight through missing their best player, their, you know, maybe their two best players, and still with the pressure and the expectation of getting results and, and going on the road and having to do it in, in a, a difficult environment. You know, they, they showed they could get a result in, in Mexico, you know, now, but now they need to go and do it again. And, and do it twice in this window while also hosting a U.S. team. So I, I think this is a really important window. I get why you're trying to say keep your feet on the ground because you also want the Canadian fans. I'm guessing he's trying to damp, you know, put a damper on the expectations around this team as well because there are this is a very difficult window for them and they're facing some tough absences. So I think we're going to learn a lot about the character of this team. I expect them to be up for the USA game, no doubt. I'm interested to see what happens with the the, the qualifiers around it. Um, but I think we'll learn a lot about this team and the character and the makeup of this team, uh, especially if you're missing both of those guys for all three of these games. All right, guys, we've been going for over an hour now, so I'm going to wrap this up. But before we do that, I want to go kind of around the horn here real quick. Uh, and, and, you know, right now, Canada is leading the, the Ocho. U.S. is one point back. Second, Mexico and Panama are one point back of the U.S. in third and fourth. Where do we think this shakes out at the end of these set, this set of three games for each of the teams? Um, obviously, a lot could change between now and Friday morning after the first round of matches. But how many points do we think Canada picks up, U.S. and Mexico? Where do we think they stand after this window? Felipe, I'll start with you, man. How many, how many points is Mexico? I, I want to say seven. I think you, you could even say that that's that's an easy answer. Drawing in Jamaica and then winning both games at the Azteca against Costa Rica and Panama. Uh, in Me- if that happens for Mexico, like all this talk and and, and sort of the pressure on, on Tata and the players, like it'll it'll ease up a lot if they if they can get nine. Which I just think that's gonna, it's it's too difficult to just guarantee nine points at this stage of the the octagonal. Uh, you know, that would obviously change everything in Mexico. But seven points out of this would be great for them. They would they, they would be out of that danger zone of uh, of basically battling Panama for the for the playoff spot. And they should be sitting pretty heading into the game against the U.S., which is obviously a, a huge match for Mexico. I think there's a lot of I keep using the word anxiety, but I think there's a lot of anxiety now around Mexico anytime they play the U.S. But this window, I think seven should sort of set the table and, and, and ease the pressure a little bit on, on the players and on Tata. That sounds pretty reasonable to me. Josh, negative Nancy, Mr. Debbie Downer over here. How many are Canada going to get? Zero? What are you going to say? Look, I'm just realistic Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I like to call myself. Um, I, I think, and I'll be honest, I I was asked this a few days ago, but I've since, once we learned that Stefan Estacchio you know, may or may not be in the lineup. I've kind of changed my line of thinking. I think five points is pretty realistic. I think you can win one of the games um, on the road. Um, and I, I think a draw is kind of the likely outcome. 
in uh, in Hamtown. That way, you know, all three of us get to go home kind of happy, and no one gets to brag on the the taxi home. I just think what this Canadian team has done really well is, like you've said, kind of puff out their chest and and take the game to their opponents. Right? They took the game to Mexico in Edmonton in a way that they hadn't in the past, and they did that against Panama. But what they haven't done as well is just kind of not necessarily as well, but what they haven't done as much is just grind out wins. And I think we're going to see a little bit of that, especially against the U.S., is just kind of, you know, eke things out in what could potentially be a really ugly kind of day with the snow and the wind. Um, And I think we'll see another one of those games as well um, in Central America. But I, I do suspect there's just enough talent on this team that they can win one of those games, probably against Honduras. Um so I think five points is pretty realistic. I don't think they're on top at the end of this window. That's for sure. I think I'd agree with that. Four or five sounds kind of likely to me for Canada this window. Paul, we'll close out with the Americans. What do you see from them? Yeah, I, I, I think that this is a seven-point window for the U.S. I think it, it lines up kind of nicely for them. Um, playing El Salvador at home in the first game, energy high, best lineup on the field. I think you get a win there. I agree, a draw on the road in Canada. And and Honduras is a team that's had a lot of changes to the lineup, to, to the squad this time around. I think they're weaker um, than they have even been throughout qualifying so far. Some interesting decisions on the roster this time around. Um, and so I, I think a win in that game as well. And, and I agree with Felipe and Josh. So I think the U.S. is the top of the group coming out of this window. And Mexico and Canada are either tied at 21 points or, or I could even see Canada potentially you know, just getting four points out of this window. So um, we'll see. But I, I have the U.S. picking up seven points. Sam, are you, are you going the same? Yeah, I'm going with seven as well. Wins at home, draw at Canada. And, and I think I'm, I'm with Felipe and Josh as well. So I'll have the Americans in first heading into the final window of qualifying. And Mexico probably in second. And I think I have Canada getting four. So I think that would put them in third. Um, anyway, guys, this has been fun. Uh, I enjoyed it. Listeners, thank you for sticking with us for over an hour. It's been a long live room, but it's been a good one. Uh, Appreciate it. Um, And and yeah, we'll be back. Paul and I will be back tomorrow night with an episode of Allocation Disorder after the U.S.'s game against El Salvador. And of course, all four of us will have coverage of the matches for the three national teams that we've been talking about um, after the games on Thursday and throughout the rest of the week as well. So thanks for listening. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be back soon. Keep on reading. Um, Cloak, yeah. keep the keep the beer cold for us, buddy. See you soon. <laughs> Top bunk, man. You called it. <laughs> <laughs> good night. Good luck. This has been Allocation Disorder. Bye. Sam and Paul also host the Allocation Disorder podcast, which can be heard on the Total Soccer Show feed or on its own feed on The Athletic, uh, which is also ad-free. Uh, They'll have a post-game review of USA El Salvador in addition to talking about the next two games against Canada and Honduras. This show is produced by Mike Zimmerman with help from John Hayes. You can get ad-free versions of the show by subscribing to The Athletic, and you can get 33% off a year subscription by going to theathletic.com slash soccer every day. Thanks so much for listening. Happy World Cup qualifying, and happy soccer to you all.